From KGW News, this is Straight Talk with Laurel Porter. Hello and welcome to Straight Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. The planet is warming because of greenhouse gas emissions from humans using fossil fuels like coal, oil and gas. We've seen the results around the world and here at home with devastating wildfires, unprecedented deadly heat waves and a record winter storm that left thousands without power. Scientists say time is running out to stop a climate change catastrophe. Representatives from nearly 200 countries gathered in Glasgow, Scotland for what was called the COP26 climate conference, trying to reach agreements to battle back global warming. It wrapped up last weekend and Oregon Congressman Earl Blumenauer was among the U.S. House members who attended. He joins us now from Portland to share his thoughts on the summit. Welcome to my guest, Oregon 3rd District Congressman Earl Blumenauer. Welcome back to Straight Talk, Congressman. Thank you, Laurel. It's always a pleasure. Well, Congressman, the climate conference was called COP26. For our viewers who may not know what that stands for, COP is short for the Conference of Parties, meaning the 197 nations that agreed to an environmental pact at a meeting back in 1992. So this is the 26th meeting, thus the name COP26. But some climate activists took that name and called it a cop out instead because the pledges made won't be enough to limit the planet's temperature rise to a key one and a half degree Celsius threshold. Congressman, you were there. What is your verdict on the success of the conference? Was it a cop out? No, I think there was some real tangible progress made. Now, make no mistake, we have seen too many promises extended, too little performance. And even the most ambitious interpretation of what's there means that we still have a deficit in terms of what we need to do for carbon reduction. But I was impressed with the energy, particularly with young people, indigenous people from all over the world. And there are very specific things that can in fact be done. I was very impressed with Secretary Kerry who led the efforts for the United States uh, being on point with the negotiations that were uh, seemingly virtually around the clock. Uh, there has been some progress made. There has been additional focus. And I think people are understanding that what we need to do is focus on specific, discrete steps that will make a difference starting now. Well, let's look at where the planet is when it comes to global warming. The Earth is already 1.1 degrees Celsius hotter than it was 150 years ago. The goal set at the 2015 Paris climate negotiations and the goal now is to keep the planet from warming beyond one and a half degrees Celsius or 2.7 degrees Fahrenheit by the year 2100. But even with more ambitious emissions cuts, the world is still on track to warm more than two degrees Celsius or 3.6 degrees Fahrenheit by the end of the century. The difference in temperature would be devastating. In an NPR article, scientists said coral reefs would face almost complete die-off, unheard of storms would become more common, and melting ice would lead to flooded cities. Congressman, how confident are you the nations can make the necessary changes to prevent that from happening? Well, it's going to be an uphill struggle. But the point is we are left with very little choice but to try our best to achieve the goals. Uh, we saw this last summer examples around the globe of the catastrophe uh, that looms ahead. Uh, in Portland, the extreme weather that we've seen, uh, 
going up to uh, 116 degrees, uh, the all-time record uh, that was uh, broken in, uh, two, uh, two days prior to that. We had other all-time records set. Um, we've seen flooding around the world, uh, people drowning in subways and in basement apartments in New York, whole villages washed away. Um, Laurel, this is, I think, the existential challenge of our time. The problem is understood. There are specific things we can do that will make a difference. We know what they are. It's a matter of will and it's a matter of follow through. Uh, I'm optimistic that if we make the progress we can in the next decade, uh, that we don't have to be doomed to catastrophe by the end of the next century, we can make a difference in the next 10 years. But the world's two biggest burners of coal, China and India, insisted at the last minute at the conference to change a, a crucial passage in the climate deal calling for a phase down of coal rather than a phase out. There are those who say it doesn't really matter what the U.S. and other countries do, American citizens, if China and India don't do their part. How frustrating is that? But it's extraordinarily frustrating. But as a matter of fact, there are events that are overtaking those countries. I mean, China has had its own reality check with extreme weather events. And right now, this week in India, there's been a tremendous lockdown and uh, closing businesses, prohibiting use of vehicles. Uh, the air quality is so bad, they've taken extreme measures uh, to prevent injury to health. Um, and I think their circumstances are overtaking those. Uh, using continued burning of coal uh, is going to be a health as well as an environmental disaster for China uh, and India. And I personally think that we're going to see some fairly significant change because circumstances are going to demand it. You're the chair of the House Ways and Means Committee, uh, Subcommittee on Trade. You're in a unique position to work on legislation that can address climate change through trade. And one way is a new bipartisan piece of legislation to stop illegal deforestation around the world. First, how does deforestation impact climate change and how are Americans perhaps unknowingly contributing to it? Well, that's a great observation. Uh, the Amazon Basin, these are the, the the world's lungs, uh, these vast forest reaches absorb a great deal of carbon. Uh, when they are burned or cut down or disrupted, it releases it. Uh, right now, there are vast areas of the Amazon basin and in Indonesia where people are coming in illegally harvesting uh, trees and then planting crops like soy, uh, palm, uh, that uh, palm oil, cocoa, that uh, on this illegally harvested land. I have legislation that would prohibit commodities that are grown on the land that was illegally harvested from entering the stream of commerce. Uh, having a financial disincentive uh, to, to uh, impede, slow, perhaps reverse this deforestation is an important step forward. Uh, we had a similar approach with the legislation I had against illegal 
logging um, in timber production in the past. And the international groups that study this suggested that by making people responsible for their supply chain uh, for illegally harvested timber, that it resulted in a 40% reduction. I think we can do the same thing with the commodities that uh, are on these uh, areas that are illegally harvested uh, and have a very significant economic signal to change behaviors. A hundred countries at the Glasgow summit, they also talked about this uh, to end, they vowed to end deforestation by 2030, but some advocacy groups remain skeptical. They say the agreement lacks teeth. It still allows deforestation to continue and similar efforts have failed. Does, does that, do those agreements and does your legislation actually have some teeth? How is it different from past attempts? Well, the legislation that I am pursuing with uh, Senator Schatz from Hawaii would uh, prohibit having these goods that are grown on illegally harvested land from entering the stream of commerce, making people responsible for the supply chain, denying them markets, and being able to have tools to monitor and to be able to have some of these uh, less developed countries be able to stand up against these forces. This is a very real opportunity to change the dynamic in a way that we haven't had before. After you got back from Glasgow, you unveiled a new report and legislative agenda titled From Ruin to Resilience. And in it, you said the U.S. federal government response to climate disasters is not enough. What do you want to see the feds do that they're not doing now? Well, Laura, the been a lot of talk about infrastructure lately, but the biggest infrastructure program that the federal government has now and for years to come is the money we spend recovering and fighting against disasters. I want to target that money to solve the problems going forward, use it to deal with the equity issues we have, uh, black, brown, poor people pay the price being able to use some of that disaster relief to put them in a better condition going forward. Changing the powers that the federal government has. FEMA is not uh, enabled to deal with extreme heat, for instance. And we found here in Oregon, uh, that is a serious problem. People died. In fact, there was a professor from Portland State University who used a heat gun at various locations uh, around our community, he found some spots where it was 180 degrees. Uh, these are the realities that we are facing in terms of the need to empower the federal government to be able to respond and to, be so, to do so in a way that is internally consistent. Part of the federal government is working to move people out of harm's way in repeatedly flooded areas well, another part of the federal government looks at these uh, repeated flood areas as uh, low cost land for potential housing. We can't be working against ourselves. You mentioned infrastructure. On Monday, the president signed a $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure bill into law, and it includes historic funding to fight climate change. But scientists say it falls far short of the investments necessary to prevent the worst impacts of global warming. Where did it fall short in your view, and what gives you hope? 
Well, we had a very significant piece of legislation that was crafted uh, by our friend Peter DeFazio, uh, chair of the Transportation and Infrastructure Committee, that would have enabled us to invest in programs that would reduce carbon input, being able to have uh, low carbon concrete, for instance, which is a huge emission, and be able to have infrastructure that is targeted for areas dealing, for example, with water and flooding. Um, I think the bill that we had uh, is a start in the right direction, and it has over a half billion dollars of new infrastructure spending here uh, that we will see in uh, the United States. Some of it's coming to us here in Oregon, but it is not enough for us to just continue to nibble around the edges. We need to up that investment. We need to target it in ways that reduces carbon pollution. We need to have more incentives to be able to change the nature of the program. Uh, we have an opportunity in this legislation to enhance alternatives. It's an unprecedented uh, investment in transit, in uh, rail for uh, Amtrak, uh, getting rid of some serious uh, pollution in our waters, uh, particularly the lead pipes that are literally poisoning uh, children when they use drinking fountains in their schools. Uh, but this is just a down payment. We have more legislation that we are working on in the pipeline uh, to be able to build on that. Um, and frankly, we also need to invest more in the human infrastructure. Well, let's talk We're about that because, that, oh. Congressman, let's talk about that because this bipartisan bill was described as scene one of a two-act play with the president's Build Back Better Act that you're referring to to further address climate change and expand the social safety net for millions of Americans. We're taping Thursday afternoon. What's the latest on that? When do you expect to vote on that? I anticipate that there will be a final vote on it before the week is out, uh, and it will deal with areas like the social infrastructure. We found in the pandemic, uh, people who cannot uh, have their children taken care of, uh, take, can't take time off work, paid family leave, uh, early childhood education, these are things that will help us be more resilient as a community and protect our families. Uh, we found that we cannot, in the face of the pandemic, uh, we cannot address the supply chains issues, the disruption, if people can't take care of their families. Now, this legislation would be an important step in that direction. We've already reduced uh, child poverty almost 50% with the first phase. This legislation would extend it and uh, expand those benefits for a longer period of time. Well, Congressman, let me ask you, because a lot of Republicans aren't happy with all the big spending. They say it's hurting American families. Inflation's on the rise with the cost of consumer goods going up. Gasoline is up. Many Republicans are blasting the president and the infrastructure bills as tax and spending plans, growing the size of government that will send inflation skyrocketing. And they say that inflation hits Americans in the lowest income brackets the hardest. In addition, President Biden's approval ratings are low. How concerned are you about what's happening with inflation? Inflation. And is it tied to all these big spending trillions of dollars on these infrastructure bills and the coronavirus packages? Well, as a practical matter, the spending that we are advancing is paid for. 
the American public supports efforts to increase taxes on the wealthiest, to have uh, a tax on stock buybacks, uh, actually give money to the Internal Revenue Service to be able to collect taxes that are already due and payable. There are hundreds of billions of dollars a year that are due and payable that people do not report on their income. I mean, that is unconscionable. Uh, people who pay by the rules, the vast majority of people who will be watching this program have their taxes withheld uh, by their employer. Uh, it's not a question of compliance. But there are many others that simply cut corners, don't report their income, and it shortchanges the budget. These are areas that... I want to jump in here because we're running out of time before we go to a break, but we got a question from a viewer. He wanted me to ask you, this is from Mike. Mike said, if the goal is to reduce carbon emissions, why not require government employees to continue to work from home? The private sector is increasingly moving this way. More and more workers are wanting this option. And thanks to the pandemic, we've already proven that we can do this. Think of all the vehicles that can be taken off the road immediately, he said, reducing carbon emissions, congestion, and the use of fossil fuels. What do you think about Mike's idea? Is that doable? Well, we're watching uh, the transition to remote working. Uh, I'm working remotely right now, being able to keep track of what I am doing in Washington from Portland. This is an experiment that is taking hold. Uh, I don't think after the pandemic we're going to revert to patterns uh, of everybody going to the office and working nine to five. I think there's going to be more flexibility. There'll be much more remote uh, employment where people will work from home. And I think that's a good thing. Giving people choices about how and where they work uh, will help on that carbon footprint. And I think that's going to be uh, a pattern going forward, not just for federal employees, but in the private sector as well. Thank you, Congressman, and thank you to Mike for the question. It's time for us to take a break. When we come back, we'll continue our conversation with Congressman Blumenauer, and we'll hear from a youth climate activist here in Portland about her fears about global warming. We're back in two minutes. Being at such a young age and knowing that things are only going to get worse and that my future looks like wildfires and heat waves and climate disasters is really scary, especially when a lot of the time the burden of fixing these issues is put upon young kids like myself. Welcome back to Stray Talk. I'm Laurel Porter. We're talking to Oregon Congressman Earl Blumenauer about climate change, the Global Climate Conference in Glasgow, Scotland, and what tangible actions are being taken to slow down global warming. Congressman, once again, nice to have you here. And I, I wanted to talk to you a little bit more about a couple of youth climate activists that I talked to last month here on Straight Talk. They're members of a Sunrise Movement PDX inspired by global climate activist Greta Thunberg. And their mission is to stop freeway expansion. 15-year-old Ada Crandall, who is a Grant High School sophomore, told us how disappointed she is in the lack of progress made in Oregon and Portland. Let's listen to what she said. I grew up hearing that Portland was so green and sustainable, um, and I was always taught about like the little things that we could do to reduce our carbon footprint, and it was like recycle and compost and bike places, and that's just really not enough. Um, it's not it's not enough at all, and it's not what's going to stop climate change. And 
I feel like in a way I've I've really been lied to about the fact that Portland is sustainable because a, a city that prioritized climate action wouldn't wouldn't be expanding freeways. Congressman, what can you tell Ada and other youth if the things you and others are working on will be enough? Well, uh, she's uh, correct that a lot of what we're talking about is not enough. There needs to be more that is done. Uh, Portland is looking hard at its transportation future uh, in terms of uh, being able to make facilities greener and more efficient. Uh, that discussion's not over. There's also a very important part of that discussion, which deals with justice for the community that had the freeway rip them apart, the Albina vision. But there's been, I think, significant progress in terms of moving forward with an alternative vision that would heal the community rather than oppose it. But this is something that the community is working on diligently. Uh, it's not finalized. There's progress that is being made, um, along with the whole range of other things in terms of the electrification of our transportation system, electric buses, uh, being able to deal with uh, electric trucks in, that are uh, instead of diesel. Uh, these are works that are in progress uh, that where I think there's some uh, uh, investment in the legislation that we passed that will help make it easier. But it's not, it's not the end of the story, it's the beginning. Well, they are strongly opposed, the uh, Sunrise Movement PDX, to freeway expansion included in the Rose Quarter I-5 project and the I-5 bridge replacement project because they will add to carbon emissions. And they say that they, there can be restorative justice reconnecting the Albina neighborhood with both the freeway caps without adding more lanes. Do you support adding more lanes to the freeway in those projects? I'm happy to work with the community to try and scale down that uh, the, the footprint of that project. Uh, I think when all is said and done, we're not going to be adding freeway lanes in Portland, but there's a process that we will work through and everybody's going to have their say. Uh, I like the redesign, but I uh, more important, I want to change how we actually move. And there's some opportunities here with these new investments to make a difference. Let's go back to infrastructure for a moment. You now have a bridge named in your honor. It's the Congressman Earl Blumenauer Bicycle and Pedestrian Bridge. It was successfully placed over Interstate 84 in October. It links two of Portland's fastest growing neighborhoods, Lloyd and the Central East Side and beyond. What does that mean to you to have a, a bridge named after you, Congressman? Well, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a nice tribute to work that I've been doing on alternative transportation here for decades. But more important, it's what it's going to signal for the inner east side. It's going to connect uh, those two vitally fast-growing areas of the Lloyd District, the central east side. It's going to remove a treacherous uh, bicycle maneuver there uh, around uh, uh, Lloyd Boulevard and uh, 11th and 12th that's going to make it safer uh, and it's going to open up uh, a much different feel uh, for the opportunities to be able to have alternative transportation and last uh, but by no means least uh, it's going to be the only bridge across I-84 that's going to stand up when the big one hits the big uh, earthquake 
because this is seismically very strong. It'll and it can actually take emergency vehicles if necessary. So it's going to be able to be a lifeline uh, that's going to make a big difference when we really uh, are going to need it. And it should be ready for riding and walking sometime next summer. Congressman, we have about 30 seconds for you to leave us with a final thought for viewers. Well, I am excited the energy that we're finding for people that are re-energized, they're committed to try and make a difference with our carbon footprint. Uh, there are no small steps and every one of us doing our part to be able to make a difference now going forward is going to make it that much easier for us to meet our goals. I like the energy, I like the commitment. There are things that we can and should do here. Thank you, Congressman Blumenauer, for joining us. Always a pleasure. And thank you to our viewers for watching and listening. Remember, you can get Straight Talk as a podcast wherever you get your podcast. Search for KGW Straight Talk. We're off next week for Thanksgiving. We hope you have a wonderful holiday, and we'll see you in two weeks for Straight Talk.